Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. November 13, 1974, the UN General Assembly gathers in New York City, and for the first time, a non-governmental representative takes to the podium. He makes a strong impression, not a typical diplomat by almost any measure. He's only about five foot two, wearing dark sunglasses as he begins his speech, and a white keffiyeh headscarf with a black fishnet pattern woven into it on his head. He has a military uniform on and a gun belt and holster, though reportedly he was forced to remove the gun before taking to the platform. His name is Yasser Arafat. And in the years since the Six-Day War of 1967, he's become the key leader of the Palestinian nationalist movement, to the Israelis, he's a terrorist. But Arafat says, quote, the difference between a revolutionary and the terrorist lies in the reason for which he fights, end quote. He goes on in the speech to say that the colonists, meaning the Israelis, they're the real terrorists. He also tells the assembly that he hopes they'll continue their work freeing the world from oppression, including imperialism, colonialism, neocolonialism, and racism, including Zionism. This is often referred to as the olive branch and gun speech because of this passage. He holds one hand high in the air and says, I come to you with an olive branch in one hand and the revolutionary's gun in the other. Do not let the olive branch fall from my hand. He wags his finger at the crowd as he says it a second time. A year later, Arafat and his allies would see an even greater victory at the UN. We reject the claim of Zionism to be coextensive with Judaism. This is Dr. Fayez Sayeg, the ambassador from Kuwait. We reject the claim of Zionism to be coextensive with the Jewish people. And therefore, we reject the claim of Zionism that to be anti Zionist is to be anti Jewish and anti Semitic. He was the principal author of the resolution being debated on the floor of the chamber here on November 10th, 1975. And he was a member of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. We now turn to draft resolution three, elimination of all forms of racial discrimination. This resolution calling for the end of all forms of discrimination actually only has one issue in mind. And it ends by saying that the resolution determines that Zionism is a form of racism and racial discrimination. The resolution passed, 72 to 35. Arafat had been a soldier in the Arab-Israeli War of 1948. And then, in the late 1950s, he founded Fatah, a militant Palestinian nationalist group. Politically, 
He was an innovator. Up through the Six-Day War, most of the resistance to the Jewish state had largely gathered and organized across multiple nations with a shared sense of Arab identity. Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon. Arafat's movement coalesced around a vision of Palestinian identity, a sense that the people who had lived in the land for centuries had an identity distinct not only from the Jews who had returned to the land, but distinct from that of their neighbors. And because that expression of identity was innovative, it led some to suggest that it simply wasn't true. Here's Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir on a British television show in 1970. When Britain got the mandate over Palestine, what was Palestine then? Palestine was then the area between the Mediterranean and the Iraqian border. You say there's no such thing as Palestine. East and West Bank, no. East and West Bank was Palestine. I'm a Palestinian. From 21 until 48, I carried a Palestinian passport. There was no such thing in this area as Jews and Arabs and Palestinians. There were Jews and Arabs. Think Appalachia. Palestine back then included what is today Gaza, uh, Israel, the West Bank, and all of Jordan. This is historian and former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Michael Oren. If you were to go to the World's Fair in 1939 in New York and visit the Palestine Pavilion, that was the Zionist Pavilion. And when you see those posters, old posters say, visit Palestine, those tourist posters, those Zionist posters. Now, all of that can be true. And it can also be true that these are unique people with a unique claim on this land. And on today's episode, that's what we're going to look at. Who are the Palestinians? And what is their claim on this land? My name is Mitre Rahib, who was born in Bethlehem. My family uh, roots are uh, here in Bethlehem for centuries, if not millennia. Your, like, your Christian roots go back as well. Yeah, I mean, remember Christianity was started in Palestine. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Palestine, not Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, and the Bible did not originate in the Bible Belt, right? But uh, in Palestine, thanks God, because otherwise he would be in deep trouble. Christianity Today, you're listening to Promised Land, a podcast about Israel and Palestine. It's an exploration of the complex and conflicting claims on a land that Christians, Jews, and Muslims all call sacred. Today, rocks and hard places, from the foundation stone to living stones, Palestinians' stories, vision for justice, and longing for peace. As we mentioned last week, Judea was renamed Syria-Palestina by the Romans around 135 AD. This was after a Jewish insurrection known as the Bar Kokhba Revolt, and the name was a deliberate insult, both in its erasure of Judea 
By the use of the word Palestina, a reference to their adversary from the Old Testament, the Philistines. The Philistines were a coastal, seafaring, and fishing tribe who emigrated from the Aegean Sea somewhere around 1200 BC. They settled modern-day Gaza, Ashdod, and Ashkelon, among others. For the Romans, though, using this name wasn't an act of restoration. They weren't returning the land to their nemesis, in part because the Romans weren't leaving, but also because there was no one to give it to. The Philistines had been conquered by the Babylonians around the same time as the Jews, during the 6th century BC. But unlike the Jews, they didn't survive the pressures of assimilation, and their civilization disappeared within a few generations. This is why Michael Oren says to think of the area like Appalachia, Syria-Palestina included Judea, along with much of Jordan, Syria, Iraq, the Egyptian Sinai, and Saudi Arabia. Jews remained in the region up through the 20th century, though their numbers in Judea and Jerusalem in particular were greatly diminished. Along with them, the population of Syria-Palestina was an ethnic mix. Greeks, Romans, Samaritans, Jews, Persians, and Bedouins. A major shift begins in Saudi Arabia around the year 570 AD, following the birth of the founder of Islam, the prophet Muhammad. He was born of the Hashemite clan, a tribe that had accumulated significant wealth through the control of trade routes, and who claimed a lineage tracing all the way back to Ishmael, son of Abraham and Hagar. Muhammad was an orphan and had been raised in the family business by his grandfather and uncle. As an adult, he went to work for a wealthy widow named Khadija, running her trade caravans between Mecca and Syria. When he was 25 and she was 40, she asked him to marry her. At the time, Mecca was a pagan city, and Muhammad would take long periods of time away in isolation to seek the one true God in a cave outside of town. While there one day, he had his first vision. An angel came to him and told him that he was going to be God's prophet to the Arabs. He reacted in fear, and he ran to Khadija and told her what he saw. She took him to her cousin, who was a Christian priest, to make sense of it. The priest affirmed the vision, and out of that, Islam was born. Muhammad would go to the cave, he would have these visions, and then he would go into Mecca and declare the one true God and his religion of submission, Islam. But he was rejected in Mecca. They would mock him, they would beat him. And so eventually he moved to Medina. And there, over a period of several years, he found a following. He raised an army, eventually bringing all of West Arabia under his control and conquering Mecca in the process. During those years, he has a vision, or perhaps we should say an experience. It's called the night journey, and it has implications for what's going on on the ground in Jerusalem to this very day. The night journey took place during a, a year in which the Prophet, uh, peace upon him, lost his uh, beloved wife, uh, Khadija. This is Mustafa Abu Sway. He's a Palestinian Islamic scholar at Al-Quds University in Jerusalem and at Al-Aqsa Mosque. He was also at one time a member of the Waqf, the Islamic Council that oversees the holy sites in Jerusalem, including Dome of the Rock and Al-Aqsa Mosque. I spoke to him in his home in East Jerusalem. He lost during that year also his uncle Abu Talib. He had many uncles. Some of them became Muslims ultimately. Some of them became arch enemies. And one of them did not become Muslim, but he defended the Prophet. His name is Abu Talib. That year is described in Islamic history as the year of sadness. According to Islamic tradition, the year was 621, the prophet is in Mecca, and the angel Gabriel wakes him, leads him to this winged horse or horse-like creature named Barak. He climbs aboard, and they take off. 
It took place from Mecca to Jerusalem. On the way, they pass through Bethlehem. And in Jerusalem, they stop at the Temple Mount. He meets Abraham, Moses, and Jesus, among others. In, in our tradition, the Prophet, peace upon him, prayed uh, on the right side of the uh, rock, where the Dome of the Rock is, and he led the other prophets in prayer. In other words, he's acting as the Imam for these Jewish and Christian figures. What it means for us Muslims is that almost like receiving the keys of the city. It's very important to mention this particular you know, uh, tradition. Then Gabriel and Muhammad ascend the seven heavens. As this happens, Muhammad meets Adam, he meets Jesus, he meets John the Baptist, he meets other prophets, Joseph, Aaron, Moses, Abraham, and then he's taken to a unique place that's beyond the divine veil into the seventh heaven. At that point, even Gabriel couldn't go with him anymore. While there, Muhammad hears a voice shouting, Allahu Akbar, which means Allah is greater. Muslims believe that here, the prophet meets with Allah and speaks with him. And it's during this meeting that Allah prescribes the daily ritual of prayer for Muslims. He actually instructs Muhammad that Muslims must pray 50 times a day. Now, during this conversation, Muhammad descends and he meets with Moses again. And Moses says, hey, that's way too much. You got to go back and ask for him to reduce it. And then there's this back and forth. The prophet goes to speak with Allah, and then he comes down to speak with Moses. And eventually, he gets the number of prescribed daily prayers down to five. At that point, he descends all the way back to earth, and he's flown back to Mecca. Now, it's worth noting that the city of Jerusalem wouldn't be conquered by Muslims until after Muhammad's death. And when Mustafa Abu Sway talks about the night journey, he doesn't describe the prophet going to the Temple Mount. He describes it as Al-Aqsa Mosque. From uh, Mecca to Jerusalem, from the Noble Sanctuary to uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque. And, and the mosque was already there? The space. The space. No buildings. This matters because Al-Aqsa is the source of endless conflict and tension between Jews and Muslims in Jerusalem. The night journey matters not only because it establishes this idea of Al-Aqsa Mosque, where the Temple Mount stood, but also because it establishes a kind of pride of place for the Prophet, this idea that he received the keys of the kingdom. What he's actually receiving in that story is a pride of place among Moses, Jesus, and the other Prophets. In other words, this story is a cornerstone for Islam's claim to be the true heir of Abraham, the truest revelation, the purest expression of divine revelation of the one true God. For Mustafa Abu Sway and many Muslim clerics like him, the idea of Al-Aqsa being a sacred space that includes all of the former temple grounds is really crucial. It underscores their claim of divine authority for Muhammad and it secures their justification for keeping the entire grounds free of other religions, including banning Christians and Jews from praying there. When the Muslims you know, conquered the city around 638, the place of Al-Aqsa Mosque was barren. And you know very well that in the Gospels, that Jesus Christ prophesied the destruction, really, of the area. This is why the Christians never developed, you know, centuries of Christian presence. They have never developed that part of the, uh, of the city. We know it, you know it. Nonetheless, throughout our interview, he kept bringing the conversation back to pluralism and to these inflection points in Islamic history where there was an emphasis on pluralism, particularly in Jerusalem. For example, when Caliph Umar captured Jerusalem, the local bishop invited him to come pray in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. He declined politely, citing his uh, worry that future generations of Muslims would claim this as a right. So here we have a wise uh, leader 
who simply said, you know, even if you are in the authority, do not touch the holy place of the other. Even if you are invited, just you keep a healthy distance. And I, the, the political implications for today are obvious. He understood there would be a pattern. Right. Of course. People would follow in yes. the footsteps. Yes. And churches would yes. become mosques rather you know, than. Oh, Bob, we, right. we, we all know how you uh, <laughs> you start with one centimeter and you end up with you know uh, swallowing everything, that, you know especially when you have power, as t- power is power corrupts sometimes maybe all the time I don't know. This is an argument that Mustafa Abu Sway has made for many years that there's a pluralistic quality to Islam, and that under its tent, which is to say under a caliphate, there's room for Christianity and Judaism. And in the Ottoman Empire, for instance, there was a legal status for what were called dhimmis, non-Muslims who enjoyed legal protection as subjects. He cited as examples of this, the preservation of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Church of the Nativity, including in recent history, financial support from Muslim leaders and governments when repairs were needed at those churches. But of course, the elephant in the room for the conversation was that he was mostly talking about Christians and Christian sites. Jewish historical sites haven't always fared as well. For instance, when the dust settled after the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, there were 35 synagogues in the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. All of them were now in Jordanian hands. By the Six-Day War in 1967, when Israel took back the old city, all but one had been destroyed or desecrated, turned to stables or hen houses or used as trash heaps. I asked him how he saw the current war, and this was about six weeks after October the 7th. What's going on is very tragic. Let us begin by uh, stressing the dignity and value and sanctity of human uh, life. If we go back, the Palestinian people did not bring anything on themselves. I mean, we were living like any other people living around the world. And just to be clear, this answer was in response to me asking about what he made of the current war against Hamas since October the 7th. Our fate was being decided first in the uh, first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland, 1897. They lobbied with the, with the British because it was the empire. Uh, in fact, in uh, 1917, the Balfour uh, Declaration, promising uh, a Jewish homeland for the Jews in Palestine, really. But the Palestinians were immediately, both Christians and, and Muslims, were reduced to an invisible status in the writing. We became non-Jews. So we don't have history, we don't have culture, we don't have civilization, we don't have religion, we don't have language, we don't have... We became non-Jews. And we were the majority. The Balfour Declaration, which he's referencing here, was a 1917 statement made by the British government announcing their support for the development of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. It galvanized the Zionist movement and accelerated the emigration of European Jews. Then, of course, comes the Nakba. 1948 
They left 2,000 people in 10 hours, not 10 days. My goal in this conversation was to hear his story, not so much to challenge it, but to understand how he interpreted these events. Even so, I was a bit surprised that when he was asked to talk about October the 7th, he pivoted so quickly to Balfour and the Nakba, as though Hamas atrocities were the inevitable result of these other events. And to be sure, one doesn't have to look far to find some rather militant rhetoric from Sway in his work and writing prior to October the 7th. He said that he wishes the state of Israel, quote, would disappear, and that Islamic law, quote, prescribes war against any nation and land once occupied by Muslims, including Spain and Israel. So it's not entirely surprising that he would make an argument that attempted some measure of justification for terror. Even so, I pushed him on the subject again. An abused woman, her husband abused her day and night, and he insists that she loves him first before he treats her well. She wants a divorce. You should love me first. Let's be neighbors. You should love me first. You cannot work like this. This rhetoric, placing most of the moral responsibility on Israel for the conflict, including October the 7th, isn't terribly surprising coming from Mustafa Abu Sway. It's consistent with other things that he's taught and written over the years. But that's not to say that the conversation was entirely without surprises. In the past, I'd only ever really heard him advocate for a one-state solution, a Palestinian state that included a Jewish and Christian minority under Islamic rule. But in this conversation in last November, he said this. We have no option as a Palestinian except to keep dreaming, keep... We will not give up this dream. We, we need... A two-state solution will liberate both peoples, not only one. Yet you talk about Northern Ireland and, and Britain. Over there, they would not talk literally. I've been there a couple of times. They would not talk with each other, literally. High school kids here in Palestine, we talk with each other. My son-in-law is a surgeon at the Hadassah Hospital, saving life in the absolute sense as a surgeon. Whether it's a Jew or a Christian, or a Muslim, it doesn't make any difference. And sometimes he would come home and sometimes he cries over someone that he could not really save and it could be a Jew. I mean, I know this. He will never disclose, you know, personal details. That's unethical. But he would come home very sad and he's very happy when he succeeds. The only other people on earth who speaks Hebrew are the Palestinians. <laughs> we know how both sides, we know each other. We almost mirror each other. And that's why I say, stop demonizing and dehumanizing the Palestinians. Stop saying that there's no part on Ramallah. Stop weakening the Palestinian Authority. Be serious about peace for your own sake. It's not a charitable work. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? 
This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. The town of Bethlehem is just a few miles outside Jerusalem. With traffic, the drive might take you 20, 25 minutes. But it's also in the West Bank, meaning it's part of the Palestinian territory, and because of that, it's almost a world apart. The day before we traveled to Bethlehem, there was a terrorist attack at one of the checkpoints between Jerusalem and the West Bank. Overnight, the IDF blockaded all of the checkpoints, putting up concrete barriers, piling up rocks and debris, making them impossible to drive through. So to get to our meetings in the West Bank, we parked along the road on the Israeli side and crossed over on foot, hoping we'd be able to call a cab on the other side. Instead, we ended up bumping into two men who were meeting at the checkpoint for a deal they'd arranged on Facebook Marketplace. One guy from Bethlehem was buying a coffee table from a guy in East Jerusalem, and the guy from Bethlehem ended up offering us a ride into town. So we just jumped in this guy's pickup truck, and he took us about halfway there. He dropped us off at a cab stand near a hotel. It's hard to overstate how dead the town was. Jerusalem was dead quiet, too. But Bethlehem is even more reliant on tourism for its economy. And whatever wasn't shut down by the war was finished off by the blockade. The economic gap between Israel and the West Bank is obvious any time you travel between them. Israel's cities feel like European cities, a mix of modern and old architecture, clean streets, high-end shops and restaurants, nice cars. The West Bank is much different. Much of the infrastructure is crumbling. The streets are often dirty. You pass empty lots full of trash and debris. And the difference is immediately noticeable. As soon as you cross through the checkpoints, you just feel it. Our destination that morning was Bethlehem Bible College and Seminary an evangelical school training pastors for ministry. You know, what's the first idea that comes to your mind when you hear the word Palestinian? This is Jack Sarah, the president of the school. And the average evangelical Christian, we right, right away will think of terrorists, Islamists, to jihadists, to Hamas, to you know, Daesh, all those ISIS stuff kind of like things that were fed into the minds or by the media or, like I said, by certain agendas. Sarah is one of the most influential voices among Palestinian Christian leaders, and probably the single most influential evangelical voice. For years, he's worked in this role to try and change the perception of Christians around the globe about Israel, Palestine, and the Holy Land. Like many Palestinian Christians, Jack traces his roots in the faith not in decades or even centuries, but millennia. He counts himself as what many Palestinians refer to as living stones— part of the Christian presence that's been in the Holy Land since the days of Jesus. Wait on, there's Palestinian Christian? No way. And Bible-believing? No. Evangelical? You know, spirit-filled? Yes. And this is this fact sometimes just makes a, a paradigm shift, just this very fact that, wait on, this is not Islam-Muslim-Jewish war. You know, there is another reality on the ground that maybe I need to explore it. 
And that's, that's a niche, you know, that's an angle I think people need to explore. I mean, if there is Palestinian Christian, then, you know, maybe we need to really ask them, how do they feel? What do they think? Where do they live? How did they live? How did they survive? You know, and you know, these Christians, many of them, I can say 100% of them, you know, we're here forever. It's not like they came from, you know, from Italy or from uh, God knows where, like many people think. You know, I always get asked this question. You know, so when did you get converted? I mean, come on, 2,000 years ago. The vast majority of Christians in the Palestinian territories are either Catholic or Orthodox, with a handful of other traditions sprinkled in. Evangelicals began to show up in a significant way in the 19th century. And, according to Sarah, they made a significant impact. And Palestinians experienced revivals all the way from the early 20th century up to 1948, which was a catastrophe not just for the Palestinian people in general, but as well for the church here. Here again, we're talking about the 1948 Arab-Israeli War and the catastrophe, the Nakba, that led to the displacement of 750,000 Arabs, including many Arab Christians. Before that, you hear about evangelical churches beaming and, and, and you know, having a strong congregations. After 1948, it's like death. You know, small numbers, churches closed, Palestinian Christians had to flee the country, go to Jordan, go somewhere else. That experience of displacement and loss, and the ongoing experience of Christians living in the West Bank and Gaza, was behind the launch of Christ at the Checkpoint, a conference hosted by Bethlehem Bible College every two years. If Christ was an, on either side of the Checkpoint, how he would be dealing in And this means humanizing uh, the people on the ground, humanizing Palestinians, humanizing Israelis, and seeing the difficulties, the challenges that both face. But at the same time, uh, trying to find a way out if possible. And uh, we believe that the scriptures needed to really be uh, unpacked for people who have, just like I said, you know, have been taken by, kept by a certain theology or a certain paradigm of understanding. Christ at the Checkpoint seeks to reframe the conflict through theological lenses. For example, many of the most ardent Israel supporters among evangelicals are dispensationalists, which means that they believe that the restoration of the state of Israel is a critical sign and necessary step towards the second coming of Jesus. For that reason, they argue, there's a theological reason to support Jewish claims on the land. This end times theology, which is known as eschatology, is just one of several ways of interpreting scripture about the second coming but it's very popular among a certain stream of American evangelicals in particular. For example, it's the theology that informs the left-behind books. Jack Sarah and many of those at Christ in the Checkpoint would not only argue for a different eschatology, they would make very different arguments about the nature of God's relationship to Jews after the cross and resurrection, arguing that the specific covenant promises that connected them to the land are no longer in place. Instead, the covenant promises are spiritual promises, fulfilled in Christ and for the church. This is sometimes called replacement theology, or a more friendly term is fulfillment theology, and there are many different versions of it. In the early years of Christ in the Checkpoint, their speakers were predominantly conservative evangelicals who argued along these lines. That included people like Lynn Hybels from Willow Creek Community Church outside of Chicago, and Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man. They also included some scholars who presented a contrarian view, a more pro-Israel view, like Daryl Bach, a progressive dispensationalist from Dallas Theological Seminary. But there was also a progressive theological stream, represented in the early days by people like Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo, and by Palestinians that embraced a version of liberation theology. 
Among them is Mitri Raheb, who you heard at the beginning of the show today. We spoke to him in his offices in the West Bank, where he serves as the president of Dar al-Kalima University, a liberal arts college in Bethlehem. What do you think Western audiences primarily misunderstand about the relationship between Israel and Palestine? I mean, the question is, what do they understand? I don't think they understand anything. Mm -hmm. The problem is that when Americans look in the mirror, they see Israel. And when they look at Israel, they see the U.S. Why? Because both are settler colonial structures. I mean, the U.S. uh, was built uh, originally by European Christians who fled for several reasons. Um, And they created a country which was not uninhabited. I mean, they were native people. And most of them were exterminated for this new country to evolve. So what what the U.S. did like 400 years ago is what Israel is doing right now in Gaza. And because you have a blind spot for your own history, you have a blind spot for what Israel is doing. Give me more detail on that if you can. Like, what is Israel doing right now that's... That's like what America did for years. I mean, for the last hundred years, they did the Nakba, which means a displacement of uh, over 800,000 Palestinians, destroying over 520 villages uh, across Palestine. And now they are displacing uh, over 2 million people. And here in the West Bank, they are putting us in like uh, reservations. So Bethlehem, if you want, is a small reservation surrounded by 22 uh, Jewish-Israeli settlements. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you are going to hear all of that. I, I guess you will be afraid to, to yeah. hear it. No, I mean, I know you enough, good enough to know what, what you like to quote and what not, yeah. unfortunately. I don't think you know me at all. Not, no, <laughs> not you, I mean, I mean uh, Christianity, Christianity today. Sure. Christianity. As you can already tell, Mitri Raheb is no stranger to controversy. He's also very influential especially in mainline and progressive churches, including the United Church of Christ and the Presbyterian Church USA. Raheb helped lead both denominations to adopt boycott and divestment policies towards Israel in 2015. In 2012, he was awarded a prize from a German media NGO for peacemaking efforts, drawing harsh reaction from Israeli diplomats and German Jewish groups. Several articles criticizing Raheb that were published at the time cited his 2010 speech at Christ at the Checkpoint as evidence of anti-Semitism, including these comments in particular. Actually, Israel presents Rome of the Bible, not the people of the land. In other words, like Rome, Israel is an imperial power, the oppressor, and the Palestinians today are the stand-ins for the first century Jews and Christians, the oppressed people under their thumb. This is right in line with what he was saying earlier about settler colonialism. And the deeper through line here connects to the comments made by Yasser Arafat at the UN and Mustafa Abu Sway's comments about the Balfour Declaration. They share this understanding that Israeli Jews are outsiders and that the nation of Israel is the product of empire and an empire itself. It's especially significant when you think about who each of these people are. Raheb, the Lutheran Christian pastor, Mustafa Abu Sway, the fundamentalist Islamic cleric, and Arafat, 
who was a Marxist revolutionary and not particularly religious. What binds them together is not a story about themselves. Each one actually has a very different vision for a better future. But what they share is a story about Israelis, a story about Jews. And Raheb takes that story a step further here. I'm sure if we were to do a DNA test between David, who was a Bethlehemite, and Jesus, born in Bethlehem, and Mitri, born just across the street from where Jesus was born, I'm sure the DNA will show there a trace, while if you put King David, Jesus, and Netanyahu, you will get nothing, because Netanyahu comes from a, 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 an East European tribe who converted to Judaism in the Middle Ages. I said I will be pushing a bit the envelope, but so far you are surviving. I'm, I'm glad for that. This theory has actually been put to the test. In a study available at PubMed, we'll link it in the show notes, researchers examined the DNA of Czechoslovakian Ashkenazi Jews against both that of their neighbors and Sephardic Jews, originating from the Near East. They found that the Ashkenazi Jews shared distinctive genetic markers with the Sephardic Jews, and not with their Czech neighbors. They also found that both Jewish groups had more in common with non-Jewish Lebanese than with the Czechs. That study was conducted all the way back in 1993, and subsequent research has confirmed it further. But old myths die hard, especially conspiracy theories, which this is. It's an old anti-Semitic conspiracy theory known as the Khazar myth. It's been around since at least the 19th century, and it was cited as recently as September 2023 by Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. So one of the questions that's sort of immediately evoked by the, by the settler colonial narrative is the fact that, you know, a significant plurality, not majority of Israeli Jews, they were refugees from Iran, Iraq, Yemen, Morocco, Libya, etc. One of the problems with the European settler colonial narrative is it just rings false based on the refugee experience of Jews. How do you respond to that? Well, first of all, um, you know, these... Uh uh, Jews from the Arab countries, they are not the one running the show. Those who are running the show are the white Ashkenazi Jews. You see them in the government, you see them in military, these are the ones, and they run the economy. So the others are actually marginalized. So they are actually within Israel, different segments. So is that codified in some ways? Is that... Is that, just, or is that just an implicit like, caste system, or is that codified somewhere in law and practice? No, it's not codified in law, but it is the practice. Now, having said that, let me say that uh, in Palestine, we had always a Jewish presence. And there was a time where being Palestinian and being a Jew was not a contradiction. Jesus was a Palestinian Jew. And that was not a contradiction in itself. And until the uh, first, uh, second world war, in fact, there were Palestinian Jews. And they were part and parcel of the Palestinian people because our society is a pluralistic society, it's a diverse society. And this is actually uh, something we are proud of. Mm. But then the Western sectarian perspective came and tried to divide people according to ethnicity. 
and they saw basically that they wanted to give, this is what Palfour did, and unfortunately he was motivated by Christian Zionist ideology. He promised Palestine to European Jews, not because he loved the Jews, but because he didn't want poor Jewish Russian people to flood uh, the UK. For your listener, I would like to state that it wasn't the Lord God who promised Israel the land, it was Lord Balfour. There are two things worth pointing out in this conversation which speak to the Palestinian story. The first is the narrative that's revealed about Jewish emigration, which was either the result of wealthy white European Jews wanting to colonize the land, or, as he describes here, the result of wealthy white Europeans like Balfour sending poor Eastern European Jews there to colonize the land rather than to have to tolerate them on the European continent. The other issue is in the background, but it's about to come to the foreground of the conversation. It's related to the Nakba and the displacement of Palestinian Arabs in 1948. For many Palestinians, any peace deal must include the right of return, the right of these refugees and their descendants to reclaim the land or at least the citizenship or residency that was lost in 1948. Today, the United Nations estimates that there are more than 5.9 million Palestinian refugees who would be affected by the right of return. For Israelis, that makes it a non-starter, as it would likely lead to the end of a Jewish majority and the end of a Jewish state. Now, when Jack Sarah and I were talking about this, he seemed to think that this fear of an Israel that was overwhelmed by the right of return was exaggerated. You know, it's not that scary. I mean, uh, most Palestinians outside the country don't want to come back. You know, yeah. a few of them want, but not the majority, right. who just after four generations now established in the countries where they are in Jordan or in Egypt or elsewhere. Probably some of the Lebanese, the Syrians, possible. But that could be dealt with as well. Mitri Raheb, on the other hand, was much more certain that Palestinian refugees in Lebanon or in Jordan would want to come back. They don't want to stay in Lebanon. They want to come back to their land. So why shouldn't they? And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? This is settler colonialism. This has to st- stop. Also, gulags, pogroms, the Holocaust. Yeah, but why should no we pay for place. that? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. Fine with me, you know? Yeah, fine with me. Um... You can be displaced from there and give it if, if you love them so much. This argument only makes sense if you accept Rahab's premises. First, the Jews, especially European Jews, have no historic claims on the land. And second, that Israel was a colonial enterprise and is implicitly a source of evil and oppression. It makes much less sense if European Jews who emigrated to Israel were themselves refugees, escaping anti-Semitism, pogroms, and the Holocaust. And if their acquisition of land was legal, if they purchased it or acquired it through other legal means, which was largely the case prior to 1948. It also makes much less sense when you factor in the displacement of Jews that took place after 1948, when Arab nations like Iraq, Yemen, Iran, and Morocco expelled 600,000 Jews and confiscated their property and wealth. In other words, this argument would make a lot more sense if the world's Jews had anywhere else to go. A few days before he and I met together, an open letter from Palestinian Christians was published at change.org. The letter called on Israel for a unilateral ceasefire. 
More centrally, it was focused on Western evangelicals, calling them out for their support for Israel and calling them to repent and express solidarity for the suffering of Palestinian Christians. Both Bethlehem Bible College and Seminary and Dar al-Kalima University were signatories to the letter, meaning both Jack Sarah and Mitri Raheb were signatories to the letter. So I asked each of them about it, starting with Jack Sarah. Something I noticed about like the change.org petition, what it communicates as I listen to it is the problem is the occupation and everything else that's happened in terms of the terror all flows as, as a reaction. So the responsibilities on Israel, in terms of the answer you just gave, the responsibility of Christians is raise your voices, put pressure here, not talking about you know, various terror organizations or whatever. Is there a role there? I mean, is there a role in terms of you as a, as a Palestinian Christian speaking to your Palestinian neighbors and saying, you have to want peace too. You have to put down your weapons as well. We have to beat our swords into plowshares as well. You know what, uh, the people who are oppressed, the people who are under the foot of others occupied are the ones who are seeking peace, who yeah. are talking about peace, yeah. who are talking about reconciliation, because they really want to solve their hurt. And I, if I could uh, describe the Palestinians in general, set aside now, you know, talking about Hamas in particular, but uh, set aside the general people group of Palestinians, I think they just want to solve the issue. Yeah. I think there's a, there's this heartbeat that's going, please, we, we're, we're, we're tired. I mean, uh, 45, war, four, four, 45 days of war so far. I mean, the West Bank is silent. Did you see anything on the, I mean, we're in Bethlehem, this is an area A, okay? Nothing going on. You know, don't want conflict. There is a peace partner in the Palestinian Authority. And sadly, Israel is not using that. It's, it's abusing it. Mm-hmm. It is too, you know, abusing it. You know, the Palestinian Authority cannot not be biased to its people. There is no Palestinian organization could say, no, you know, I am even a Christian organization. Would sit in the middle and say, you know, I denounce this and I condemn this and I condemn that. You know, it is... <laughs> You know, you're seeing what's happening on the ground, and mostly what you're seeing is your people is being crushed. So there's no way you're going to say uh, something against uh, this or that, in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't mean that you condone violence or terrorism or killing of civilians or innocent people or even killing at all. You know, right. I think it would be dumb and biblical and, and to, uh, to condone or approve of such a thing. I don't approve of what happened on the 7th of October. I don't. Yeah. It's really, uh, uh, I ran out of the words to say how, how terrible it was. I asked Mitri Rahab essentially the same question. What I found remarkable was that in, in all of it, there's no mention of Hamas. There's no mention of the atrocities of 10-7. There, there's almost no indication that this was a response to an act of aggression by a, a terrorist group. Talk to me about that. Now, first of all, this whole thing did not start on October 7th. You know, the most important thing in the Middle East is when does history start? That's the thing. If you start on October 7th, as if everything before was heavenly, you have no idea what the situation was. I mean, this is the fifth war on Gaza by Israel. And again, remember... Why not blame Netanyahu for strengthening Hamas? 
Have you heard any Jewish person that is speaking against the war on Gaza now? They all are cheering, say, you know, let's give them a second Nakba. This is what I call the Joshua factor. What's that? That's the book of Joshua, mm-hmm. where God is telling, uh, go, Ryan, kill old, uh, young, uh, child, uh, don't lead even uh, a goat, ox, tree, don't leave anything. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what Israel is doing. So, and unfortunately, some Christian Zionists think this is exactly the fulfillment of the Joshua. What Joshua did not finish, now they, uh, uh, Netanyahu would like to finish. You can see how sick mentality this Christian is. There is no Christian values anymore. They so so would, you say, values. would you say that when, when Israel says, hey, we're going to do... We're going to do periodic pauses. We're going to open humanitarian corridors. We're going to drop in humanitarian aid. We're going to bring in medicine and food. We're going to. We're this is all. This is all, all propaganda. This is all propaganda. They so haven't done No, I mean, no, I mean, what they have? What hundred trucks they allowed in in forty days? And you seems to be, you know, believing this uh, Jewish propaganda, defending it. I'm asking questions. I'm no, asking no, you what but, you but the it. question implies that you actually believe this. Well, I'm, I'm, I literally am saying this is what they're saying. You say, I'm asking you what you make of it. Um, do you feel like when you look at opinion in Europe and the West, do you feel like the, the climate has changed at all? The, the support for Israel has changed at all? Or is it basically where it was? No, I think it is changing. It's, it changes all the time. I mean, you have uh, young evangelicals in the States uh, today who are... Uh, concerned about justice, they are not anymore like their uh, fathers and grandfathers, because for them justice matters. If you are looking for a just cause, Palestine is the just cause per excellence. Here you can see the whole world system and oppression in a nutshell. So it's changing. Uh, mainline churches uh, in the U.S. are changing. I mean, it's, uh, if you take the Presbyterian Church, the Lutheran Church, the United Church of Christ, the Disciples of Christ, uh, they have a, a very solid, uh, even-handed approach to what's happening. They understand because they want to understand. They are not blinded by a religious, national, American ideology. That's the problem. Yeah. The problem is not the Bible. The problem is the American nationalism that has blinded people to see really what is happening here. And the book of Joshua, apparently. Definitely. <laughs> let, me, let me come back to the question I asked a minute ago because I feel like we got derailed. So, so I was saying you wrote a statement, you, 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 you wrote the petition, the call to repentance. Um, I'm not, I'm, I don't know if you personally wrote it, but your organization signed it, right? Right, um, I, I didn't write it, yeah. And so when I said it struck me that there was no condemnation of Hamas, just to clarify, so your answer to that is I'm not going to condemn Hamas in this because that's not where the conflict began. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? No, I didn't say that. I said uh, the conflict didn't start there. And so you cannot just look at this and you don't look at, at the whole context. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you look at that, but can't you look at the whole context and say these jihadists aren't helping us? Like what they did was horrific and evil and horrible and must be condemned. Now, if they help us or not, this is a different question. Uh, the thing is, again, 
I mean, I wrote my own reflection saying that, I mean, we are against targeting any civilians on any side. So this has to be clear. But it is this obsession with, I mean, why, why not ask, you know, Netanyahu, who really invested so much in Hamas? Nobody talks about that. Who's blaming him for that? Nobody. You blame the victim. And this is not something new, blaming the victim. The same thing could be said of hundreds of peacenik Israelis living on the border, working with Gazans, hiring Gazans, holding a love and music festival who were, who were brutally slaughtered. And in the aftermath of that, we can't just simply say, this is, this is terrorism and must be condemned. And instead saying, we have to look at the broader context. Right. Like there's something, I, I don't mean to be, you've been direct with me, I'm going to be no, direct no, with you. Please, there's please. something grotesque about saying, let's look at the broader context in the aftermath of 10-7. No. Again, 10-7 has a context. And again, I, I, I will not defend what happened to these young people who were celebrating. I said I'm against yeah. targeting of civilians. This should be very clear, okay? But again, who is a terrorist is, a, is an important question, you know? If you talk to Israeli, they will consider those Jewish freedom fighters who were opposing the Roman Empire as their heroes, right? But the Romans thought of the Jewish, I'm, I'm thinking about the first century, right? Sarah, right. Yeah? Right. Uh, the Romans thought these are actual Jewish terrorists. So are they terrorists or not? The Israeli are saying they are not terrorists. They are freedom fighters because the Romans are the empire. Nowadays, Israel is the empire. The Palestinians of today live in a, in a similar situation like the Jews in the Roman Empire. This is, this is the parallel that you have to look at. And if you answer the one, you cannot answer this one like this and this one differently. Either both are terrorists, which is fine with me, or both are freedom fighters. Is that fine with you? What? That they're both freedom fighters? I, I can live with both. Is this the way of Jesus is then a different question. Because as you remember, uh, maybe Jesus was not for taking the sword. But if you talk about taking the sword, you have to also to talk about state terror. Because airstrike on civilians, this is state terror. So you cannot just mention the one without mentioning that. All right, I've taken up too much of your time. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have no, asked? No, I think no. it's okay. We'll see how you will uh, use it. And for his part, Jack Sarah doesn't embrace the same polemic as Mitri Rahab, and he doesn't seem to have taken as grim a view of Jewish presence in the land. He does, however, have a sharp-edged take on who's to blame for the current state of the conflict. Yeah. America could push hard if you have a willing, you know, government that is there, but the government, the government there, with all the respect to them, they're afraid of their voters, who many of them are Christians, who might see this, you know, going as unbiblical, you know, anti-end-time theology, etc., etc., etc. I mean, this is how you see this intermix between the politics and theologies and sometimes even misconceptions, which you're hitting right on this. Palestinians have compromised to an 18 to 20% of their historic lands. And this is just give us this part. We're okay with that. Just give us to live in dignity. Give us to live in freedom. Give us to decide what we want. You know, even if you want us to have 
don't have major weapons just to have our police. They did agree on this. You know, it's not, uh, it's not the secret that they did agree on all of these deals. And at the end, there was the fanatics, which is mostly on the Israeli side, like what happened with, I mean, who, who killed President Rabin? It wasn't Palestinian. Here, he's referring to the 1995 assassination of Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. Two years earlier, Rabin had led Israel through the Oslo Accords, a peace process in which Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat renounced violence and officially recognized the state of Israel. And in turn, Israel recognized a degree of Palestinian sovereignty over parts of Gaza and the West Bank. The intent was to further that recognition and deepen the bonds of peace over time. But instead, Rabin was assassinated by a right-wing Israeli extremist an activist in the West Bank settler movement who opposed the Oslo deal on principle. I'll actually have a lot more to say about the settlers in a future episode. For now, it's important to simply understand that this is part of the Palestinian story. Peacemaking stalled after a Jewish extremist assassinated the Israeli prime minister. In a similar way, according to Sarah, the talks that were brokered by President Bill Clinton in 1999 and 2000 also broke down because of Jewish extremists. Basically, Arafat didn't find a partner for dealing with them. You know, I'm not defending who walked away. I mean, this is, again, an Israeli token says we walked away. But why did he walk away? He was asked for even a further compromise that he, can, he cannot even give, uh, if you're talking about Camp David. And, and what started the Second Intifada was uh, another fanatic walking into the Dome of the Rock. And that kind of, like, was warned by even by the states and by others, just not do it. And you could see the repercussion of strong-willed or, or, or arrogance of, of certain groups that causes the damage to the majority of the groups. Not far from Bethlehem Bible College is Emmanuel Evangelical Church. It's one of the larger evangelical congregations in all of the West Bank. The pastor is Nihad Salman, a former teacher at Bethlehem Bible College and former speaker at Christ in the Checkpoint. These days, he's less involved with the school and less focused on the politics in general. Instead, he's focused on pastoring his church and planting churches throughout the region. Uh, we already planted other churches outside the church, mm. even in Haifa. So if you go to Haifa in Israel, we have a, a church there called Emmanuel Church that yeah. I uh, helped to start. Uh, we're planting several other uh, churches. Uh, at this point, we have a, a new in, in one of the villages ne- north of the West Bank, next to uh, Jenin, you know, to, mm-hmm. in Zababde. Like many other Palestinian pastors and theologians, Salman rejects the school of thought that believes the emergence of the modern state of Israel was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. When you grew up in a church and you realize that uh, all the preaching is about the fulfillment of prophecy, is we are living in the end times. 1948 is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's not easy when you come in and in one session you want to change the whole uh, idea of, I mean, you're shaking the basis of their faith. Why? Because at the time where there was so much criticism for the Bible, Israel is is the state of Israel and so most without even thinking. uh, Believers want to like cling back to the Bible, this is a, we don't discuss it anymore. This is the fulfillment of prophecy, that's it. Mm-hmm. And yet, he also holds loosely his own sense of claim on the land, and he encourages his church to do the same. My problem is not saying to God, 
You cannot give this land to a No, this land belongs to God. He can give it to whoever he wants to. I cannot tell him no or yes. God is all authority mm-hmm. and he is sovereign and the, the earth is his. The whole universe is his, his creation. Specifically, what that means to Salman is that he can hold on to a certain sense of Palestinian identity and a sense of injustice about 1948 and the occupation. And specifically, what that means to Salman is that he can hold a certain sense of Palestinian identity and a sense of injustice about 1948 and the occupation. He could talk about these things at length, he, and I did. He can also hold to this theological view that doesn't view modern Israel through a biblical lens, but he can hold it loosely, and he can call himself and his church to a different way of being, a different presence, a different identity other than that of the oppressed. He can urge them to see Israelis and Palestinians, Jews, Muslims, and Christians as neighbors. Whoever comes to Emmanuel Church knows the position of Emmanuel Church is we don't take sides. We don't let the propaganda lead us. We have a Bible to lead us into this. So what we do, we say, first of all, we pray for all people. And we don't try to demonize the other side. If you want to hear a theological position, I, I can give you, a, a, I, you know, I studied the Bible, I taught the Bible, I can give you some words. But if you really want the, the, the heart of God, it is in 1 Corinthians 13. If I know all, if I have all the knowledge, and I know all the prophecies, and I have faith that can move mountains, and I have no love, I am nothing. Jesus, when he was on the cross, he manifested this when he spoke, to, uh, he prayed for the ones who were killing him. He prayed and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Can you imagine Jesus praying for Hamas? Can you imagine Jesus praying for Israel, uh, the military? Mm-hmm. Forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. No, they know what they're doing. They're killing you, Jesus. <laughs> You can argue with the Lord, but the fact is, first of all, we are ambassadors of Christ. We need to present to the people Christ. When they look at us, they see Christ. You are the light of the world. Do they see in us light? Do they see in us hope? Do they see in us mercy? Do they see in us love? No, well, I say, they are the worst. Okay, Israel, it's the worst people in the world. They are our enemies. And if I talk to a messianic, I say, all right, you're right. The Palestinians are your enemies. What to do with your enemies? What did Jesus say? He said, love your enemy. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. So as a Palestinian Christian, I say, people have the right to exist. The Jews and the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. We should not neglect both sides. They are here. Let's worldwide, all of the governments have to think now, how do we make them live together? Live together. A peace, but not any peace. It has to be just peace. On our next episode, 
We'll dig a layer deeper into all of these stories, into the ideas behind them, the ideas that fuel the conflict, that heighten the tensions, that erupt into violence. And we'll begin to sort through the competing claims you've heard on the show so far, looking for the path to peace. The Promised Lands is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by Mike Cosper. Associate production by Michael Winters. Additional production by Matt Stevens and Clarissa Mall. Some production coordination and assistance for this series was provided by The Philos Project. Music by Dan Phelps. Additional music by David Lachance. Our theme song is by Sandra McCracken. This episode was mixed by Mike Cosper. Russell Moore is our editor-in-chief. I'll skip the graphic design. Russell Moore is our editor-in-chief. Uh, we have kids in, in New York, but also in Dallas, Texas. Um, and for whatever reason, our eldest son loved the, the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, even before, you know, uh, going there, but that's that's something. Uh, no cure for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>